and welcome to Even the Trunchbull, our show about children's books and why we still love them as adults. She's Nina. They're Matt. And we think that children's books are for everyone because we've all been kids. Even, Even the, the Trunchbull. Trunchbull. They're all mistakes, children. Filthy, nasty things. Glad I never was one. From Roald Dahl's beloved Matilda, despite her protestations. Each episode, we review one picture book and one chapter book. We've started off with the books that we read as kids and branched out from there. But if you've got a book that you'd like us to review, especially if you are currently a kid, please get in touch. You can email us at eventhetrunchbull at gmail.com or catch us on Twitter and Facebook at TrunchbullPod. And this week's our Christmas episode. So our theme is, well, Christmas. Yay! Our picture book is Happy Christmas Gemma by Sarah Hayes and illustrated by Jan Ormerod. And our chapter book is I Saw Three Ships by Elizabeth Googe. So shall we start with Gemma? Yeah, so I mean, these were both new to me, but I think Gemma is a childhood pick for you, isn't it, yeah, Nina? Yeah, yeah. So the, there's a more famous book about Gemma called Eat Up Gemma. You might have seen that one. I haven't. I have not seen any of the Gemma series. She seems very lovely. She's a she's a little baby, isn't she? Yeah. Um. So the Gemma books are written from the perspective of Gemma's big brother and in first person I, narration. So we don't know what yeah. Big Brother's called because Big Brother is who you're picturing yourself as, really, in these books. And what yeah. I love about them is the annoyed slash completely melted heart tone of the brother when he's talking about Gemma. So half the time Gemma's doing something annoying. He's like, I put a star on top of the tree. Gemma threw one off. <laughs> yeah. We stirred the Christmas pudding. Gemma threw a spoon. Like <laughs> that had passed me by. It's the reverence he's got as well, though, isn't it? Yeah. For Gemma. Like he always says what he did and then what Gemma did. Yeah. You know, like they're a little pair and they go together. So this is just a very normal Christmas in their household, it seems like. So Gemma's family is a Jamaican-British family living in the UK. This was one of the only picture books I had growing up that featured a family of colour as well. Yeah. I think my mum made a point of buying the Gemma books for that reason. And I think they came out in like the 80s where representation of black families in British picture books was far sparser. So uh, yeah, big brothers maybe seven, eight. Gemma is a toddler. And they're going through a traditional Christmas for them. And this Christmas is very close to my Christmases as a child. I don't know if it is for you. Definitely what came across to me was like the sense of coziness. Yeah. The bit at the end that I really loved was when they're singing carols and our narrator says, I I sang one on my own too. (laughs) And the picture's just gorgeous. I think they're pencil. Right. But it feels like they're made to look like family photographs. Yes. So like that one where he's like, oh, I sang a carol. It's him in his little blue dressing gown. And he's just sort of like head slightly down. Like he looks a bit sort of like bashful, but proud of himself. And then his grand stood next to him and is just beaming directly at the camera, if you like. What was your Christmas like? Where is it similar to yours? So... I shared a bedroom with both my younger siblings until quite late. So this business of going to bed and hanging up your stockings and then not being able to go to sleep because you're so excited, that was us. Like, I remember both my sisters at the age that Gemma is in this book, and they did stuff like that that Gemma's doing. Like, there's a bit in the book where they can't find Gemma and they're looking for her everywhere and then they find her inside the cupboard 
eating the icing off the Christmas cake. <laughs> so, I mean, this is a very typical toddler behaviour. And it's also very typical older sibling feeling annoyed by the toddler. You know, yeah, yeah. like you're trying to make something good. I mean, for me, what it was often is I was drawing and then a sister or two would come along and scribble all over it. I mean, it definitely, like, it definitely made us feel Christmassy, this book. It's that coziness and Mm. that kind of, like, everyone together, not very much happening, but just everything being quite nice, you know. Um, And I guess as well, as you say, it's that sort of slight level of tension just underneath the surface. Which is normal too, (laughs) I think. The other bit that really spoke to me is the bit where they're phoning cousins abroad. We had that as well. We were brought up in France with most of our family living in the UK. And so at one point on Christmas Day, we'd gather around the landline. I was going to say this would be back in the day when yeah. that's a bit of an event, because like a long yeah. distance call, like you paid for it. Yeah. On Christmas Day, there was, you know, the time when you went to the phone and we spent some time on the phone. <laughs> uh, and I think yeah. these um, in Gemma's family, they're calling Jamaica, I think. And we were calling the UK. That that bit in the book sets up my probably my favourite joke of the book mm-hmm. as well. I mean, where they're like, "Oh, we're we're all calling family in Jamaica," and then it's just got Gemma's calling yeah. someone too, and she's just got a little toy yeah. phone pressed to her ear, and it's it's, it's just really, really sweet. Probably, it's got a mm-hmm. few levels, doesn't it? Because it's just a nice image, but then also like coming from the point of view of the seven, yeah. eight-year-old, there's that slight sense of, oh, bless her, she thinks she's ringing someone, and who's yeah. who's she on the phone <laughs> to? Like, <laughs> that looks like an important call. <laughs> I, I just feel like it captures something really real about toddlers and what it's like having them around. And on the one hand, they are yeah. very uncomplicatedly sweet. And on the other hand, they are little chaos machines. (laughs) No, it's lovely. Really lovely pictures as well. Yeah, Um, I really love them. So uh, that's it for this book. What age would you say it's format? It's got a few levels, like obviously dead little ones. But it's, um, I think it's, I think it's a book that would have an appeal for the adults as well. Like Mm -hmm. it's fairly universal. It's it's a read along for little, little kids in it. How about you? What do you reckon? Well, the reason it meant so much to me is because I was an older sibling to two toddlers. Mm, mm. So it really spoke to me on that level of you're trying to do your things and then the toddler's just wreaking chaos behind you. I love that about it. And I think <laughs> any older sibling of a toddler will enjoy this whatever age they are. But especially if they're in that sort of like five, six, seven, where they're starting to feel a bit older. I'd say first age group is like toddlers. And then your secondary audience are the siblings of toddlers. And it's really lovely as an adult to read as well. So shall we move on to Three Ships? Yeah. Should we tell, you tell us about it, Matt? Oh, it's another new one on me. It's, it's gorgeous. I've, I've fallen in love with it somewhat. It feels quite difficult to summarise in a way. I'm not, in, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not entirely sure I can summarise what it's about. It felt in some ways like a poem to me. It's yeah. structured around the folk song, I Saw Three Ships which has various theories of where it comes from, but one of them is tied to the Glastonbury yeah. legend and the sort of Arthurian legends that Jesus came to Cornwall or the West Country as a young boy 
and appeared on one of these three ships with the Virgin Mary. And there's some some speculation that this might have been possible because you had the Phoenician tin trade with Cornwall. Yeah, so the book is structured around this song and you get a little snippets added throughout the book. It's very, very short, but it's just very picturesque and again conjures a mood. It felt very yeah. Christmassy. So it's just this little girl poppy who lives with her two aunts in a village which Im- immediately to me felt so Cornish. This little girl who's insistent on leaving the doors open on Christmas Eve because that's what they used to do when she lived back in the country. And her aunts are saying, like, absolutely no way. But she, she wants to leave the doors open in case the wise men come in the three ships. And the angels, because when she lived on a farm in the countryside... She used to hear the angels walking up and down the stairs on Christmas Eve. They always left the doors open and and she didn't hear their steps because they were too light on their feet for that. But she heard their feathers brushing against the walls. And, you know, you wouldn't want to lock the angels out on Christmas Eve. Yeah. (laughs) Her aunt's point is that, you know, they can't do this because they haven't got a man in the house. All they've got is grandfather's hat hat. and grandfather's (laughs) dead, but they've got a a hat there so that there's some semblance of there being a male presence to ward people off, which is quite interesting. Yeah, like the feel of the book is gorgeous. It's got this real kind of like small town out on the edge of nowhere feel. These characters who have sort of a sense of kind of former grandeur, like there's been... Yeah, they've come down in the world a bit. It's like they've still got their best silver, but they're living in a... I mean, to be honest, not at all pokey cottage. It seems like there's quite a lot of rooms yeah. and space in this cottage. But... Fairly middle class, but they can't afford servants anymore. Yeah. So when they polish the silver, they draw the curtains so that nobody sees so that... them doing yeah. their own housework. Because <laughs> <laughs> that but would be it's... so embarrassing. <laughs> but just the exuberance of this kid. She's just a lovely, lovely character to follow. She's just really adventurous she's off around the town and then just that the sort of time it's set in i think i've got a real just a real fascination for it's not set specifically but we think don't we that it's uh turn of the 19th century yeah very late 18th century start of the 19th century which is by the way when elizabeth googe writes a lot of her books she was born in 1900 and almost all of her books are set about a hundred years before. It sort mm, of seems to mm. be the era that she personally is nostalgic for. Yeah. It's quite funny, so she's quite good with like the historical detail, but she also has her like nineteen forties, fifties, sixties sensibilities projected onto it. You know, for example, the thing about the aunts being embarrassed not to have servants. Mm. She's sort of poking fun at them a bit for that, right? Like and in the yeah. end one of them goes to like polish the silver by the window and look out the window and she's like, Oh, I'm like some gypsy woman singing outside her front door where I think from the aunt that's supposed to be pejorative, but from the writer mm. it's positive. Because it's nice to sit on your front step and do a bit of handwork and see the world go by, you know, like yeah, there's no need to lock yeah. yourself away because you haven't got servants. They're funny characters, the aunts, aren't they? Yeah, they're really good. The little girl is listing the things that she wants in her Christmas stocking and all of them are fulfilled apart from uh, beads, which she knows won't be fulfilled because her aunt will see it as... uh, Vanity. As vanity, yeah. Yeah. And then the other aunt, who I think is a bit more forgiving and easygoing but is completely under the thumb of 
of the stricter one. The, I mean, they kind of read as like just this completely <laughs> codependent, like dysfunctional yeah. relationship mm. into which is thrown this small child who they have to kind of deal with. Yeah. And it says she always gets her own way with them, whether or not they know that. Yeah. 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 Right <laughs> at the beginning of the book, isn't it? Is uh, like that's usually where the conversation ended. And usually Poppy would just go away and do the things she'd been told not to do anyway. But this time she decided that she was going to argue the toss before going away and doing the things she'd been yeah. told not to do <laughs> <Yeah>. anyway. <laughs> Yay! Yay, Christmas giveaway! We're doing a giveaway! We've put together a bundle of presents all connected to the themes and books we've been reading throughout the year and wrapped them all up in a tote bag kindly donated by Armchair Books. Disclaimer, we know the co-owner of Armchair Books, so that's how we got it. Definitely check out Armchair Books if you're ever up in Edinburgh. Gorgeous little bookshop. So basically, each week this series, we're going to be popping in to tell you about one of the presents... This week we're telling you about what is masculinity, why does it matter, and other big questions by Jeffrey Boyacci and Darren Chetty. This book was kindly donated by friend of the show Dave Pickering, so as Dave contributed this book, we're going to let him tell you all about it. It's all about challenging masculinity. It's aimed at like top end of primary school, bottom end of secondary school. It's the kind of book that I wish it existed when I was a young person. It's really good. The whole series is like Michael Rosen's brainchild. If you like Michael Rosen, and I hope that everyone listening does, you should definitely check out that book. So that was What is Masculinity? Why Does It Matter? And Other Big Questions going in the tote bag with the Snowman audiobook, Carlo Collodi's Pinocchio and the Wind in the Willows board game. And if you need reminding of how to enter, just check out the show notes. And now on with the show! Dorcas and Constantia. So they're these very, like... These slightly posh 1800s women with these sensibilities. And then it's like the narration is sort of poking fun at them a bit. For example, they've got very fixed ideas about gender and who's got sense and who hasn't. So they're like, Hmm. we can't leave the doors open because there isn't a man. Uh, Poppy says, well, what about the wise men? How will they get in if you shut the doors? And they're like... Don't talk nonsense, child, said Dorcas impatiently. And there are no wise men. I have never met a man yet who was not foolish. And then the narration goes on to say, in the Flowerdew family, wisdom had only existed in the female branch. Yeah, that it's a great line, that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the, all the men in their family have come a cropper in some way. And there's just the women left to mourn them and bemoan their stupidity. Yeah, it's it's really appealing characters. The wise men are all quite interesting. So the, the approximate dating we have of the story comes from the mad Frenchman who Poppy meets down these slippery steps which no one dare tackle apart from her. And she meets the Frenchman who is known as mad throughout the yeah. town but she gets on with quite well. And it's referenced that he's escaped the terror. Yeah. 1792 to four, isn't it? So we're some time after that, he'd had his wife and child in hiding and had heard that they'd been murdered. That thing of just going off to England, which would be a world away, and just hiding out in this little village and just becoming like the mad foreigner with an interesting backstory. 
large reason that they think he's mad is because he says Catholic prayers in the church. <laughs> yeah. As if like that's really <laughs> kooky. <laughs> so weird. Very unseasonable weather, said a voice. Mademoiselle Polly, may I stroke the small cat? Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners. Polly was not startled by the loud voice breaking in suddenly upon her peace or by the mixture of subjects, for the Frenchman was a friend of hers and she was used to his sudden appearances and disappearances and his love of cats and prayer. When he was not kneeling in the old church by the harbour saying popish Latin prayers at the top of his high cracked voice and telling his popish beads to the scandal of all good Protestants going in and out to polish the brass or beat the dust out of the hassocks, he was striding up and down the steep streets of the little town, followed by all the cats of the neighbourhood who adored him not only for the fish heads he kept wrapped in newspaper in his pockets for them, but also for some quality in himself which appealed to their sense of breeding. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting, Elizabeth Googe has, to my knowledge, done this at least twice. Her most famous book is The Little White Horse, and that also features a French refugee from the Terror. Clearly, this is like a point in history mm. in a group of people that she's very interested in. I guess, if you think about her Christianity, often the point she's making is that Catholics and Protestants aren't so different, I think. She is an extremely Christian writer. Mm. 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 And she, you know, in this book, for example, writes her own little miracles, right? She's divides opinion among Christian readers in a very interesting way. So a lot of Christian readers just love her, you know, because her books have miracles and a loving God and good Christian people, all that kind of stuff. And then some Christian readers have a real problem with her use of magic because it's like, how dare she make up a miracle? Only God can make up miracles, you know? I know which side of the fence I'm on entirely in this. I, I yeah. love what she does. Because that kind of slightly archaic, laced with good old days Christianity, like any whiff of that tends to annoy me so much. And it so doesn't in this. No, it doesn't annoy it's me Because it's just, either. it's such a lovely reworking, you know, mm. like the idea that the wise men are just people from the village. Yeah. The mad Frenchman is one of yes. the wise men, you yeah. know. I like that And brings much. her a rosary bead because her answer to... Protestant, I suppose, yeah. to let her have yeah. beads and things. And he's like, oh, give her this, will you? If you take it too far, there's a slight problematic side to that. The love of pleasant old green England, right? Mm. Which can get a bit whiffy, but within that, the bit that I really don't mind and kind of love is just, it's the love of nature and it's that yes. religious element of just celebrating how beautiful things are. Yeah. Yeah. There was a hint of a smile upon her usually grim mouth, for though she did not admit it, she was enjoying this expedition in search of the erring Polly. The sharp tang of the seaweed lying in shining coils on the sand below her was delightful. The sparkle of the sea and the sunshine raised her spirits. Turning to look at the little town, she found she had forgotten how pretty it was with steep cobbled streets climbing up the hill. Its old red roofs all higgledy-piggledy and the plumes of smoke from the chimneys azure in the clear air. Christmas Day tomorrow. I guess there's a whiff of 
paganism in that as well and there's yeah. a sense of like these stories and these histories and traditions being like ages old i mean you know like the three ships song that myth is kind of similar to like william blake's jerusalem which mm-hmm. is obviously all of that again it's yeah. like you know did did those feet in ancient times walk on england's mountains green and all that it's you know yeah. was jesus here back in the day but I, I quite like that sort of rooting these religious stories to like history, yeah. I guess, and and nature. Mm. It's very lovely. You're right. The style of writing is really good. It's sort of it's extremely accessible for something which is quite old now. Um, shall we talk about the three wise men? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So we've established we've got the Frenchman and then one of the wise men is Tom, the brother of the ants yes. who was a reckless young man and ran away and went off to sea i think the implication yeah. is like he joined the navy and he never came back and dorcas in particular is always fondly imagining that one day he might come home and misses him quite a lot she really mourns him like she actively mourns him yeah when she hears singing she's like oh i remember tom had a really sweet singing voice like a blackbird he sounded like a little bird yeah yeah Tom reappears and reappears at first to Dorcas. And she doesn't know who he is. Kind of recoils from him. It looks like he's just eyeing up the silverware while she's polishing it in the window. (laughs) But yeah, so he turns out to be one of the wise men. And he brings money to stand in for gold. Yeah. Frenchman brings rosary beads, which stands in for frankincense, because I guess it's, you know, connotations to prayer, isn't it? Yeah. And then we have the rags and bones man. Yeah. Well, I forget which ant it is. Is out looking for Poppy and runs into the rags and bones man who is this old, old man who's got a long white beard and he's blind in one eye and he's only got one leg. He's got like a wooden peg leg. And he's homeless. He's begging. Aye, he's basically... The implications, everyone in the town knows him. And like, when you say the rags and bones man... You chuck him a penny. And he's been there yeah. the whole time. But I think, like, on this particular occasion, Aunt Dorcas has just been having this kind of, like, slight reverie reflection on the fact mm. that she used to be young and now she's old. And somehow yeah. the years in between have passed. And then she sees Rags and Bones and she's like, I remember this guy walking round the street when I was little. And that he was already old when she was young. So how old must he be? Yeah, if I'm old... God, how old is he? <laughs> so she stops and chats to him, which he's never thought to do before. And he keeps egging her for a bit more money. Um, yeah. He's like, oh, well, go on then, make it two, make it three. He keeps saying, um, yes, I'm very old. This will probably be me last Christmas. So I don't want to yeah. be hungry and I certainly don't want to be dry. You know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in this in this case, of course, meaning sober. So the ant gives him, I think, three coins in the end and goes home, like, slightly changed. I mean, it sort of feels a little bit kind of Dickens' Christmas Carol at that point. It's like a character change moment. And she's got this warm, fuzzy feeling and she's asking the other ant, like, how much beer could you buy with three coppers, you know? And the other ant's like, I think we should have an early bedtime. You're getting fanciful. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So Rags and Bones Man comes back in the night. Aye. To rob them. 
Yeah, that's that's true, actually, yeah, because he just smashes through the parlour window at first, doesn't he? To nick a loaf of bread. Meanwhile, um, the other two wise men are already camped out in the living room because yeah, Poppy's let them like, in through right, the living room window. Yeah. We'll give you good dinner. <laughs> yeah. And his gift is his death. Yeah. Now, this is where I think this is a bit problematic. Like, I mean... In a way, you're right, it's very Christmas Carol. It's very Tiny Tim. It's, you yeah. know, the disabled person who makes everyone else feel better about themselves because they're not missing an arm and a leg. And, oh, but he's so cheerful. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. You know, his, his disabledness made him wise. Yeah. Um, and that they're, when he's about to leave, both the other wise men reach into their pockets to give him some money, and then they look up, and he's got this look of, like... Nobleness. He looks so majestic mm. and powerful mm. that they feel it would be an insult to give him any money, even silver. And so they don't give him anything and he goes. Yeah. And they say, I don't think we'll be seeing him again. And they don't. So he's sort of like the sacrificial cripple that, you know, enriches everybody else's good time. So that's ableist. What it edges towards is poverty porn. Yeah, absolutely. But even if he's doesn't have a leg and an eye missing, I think what's quite touching is the fact that he's been a feature in all of their childhoods and he's always been there. Yes. And no yeah. one's ever bothered to ask him about himself. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot going on there. I mean, it's... Mm. Um, I don't totally get it. I'm still kind of getting my head around it. I guess it's very much a sort of... Jesus died to save us kind of thing, yeah, right? Yeah, it's his, his death is her gift. But quite what she gets from that, I'm not, I'm not totally sure, to be honest. But, no, um, we might not be Christian enough to get it. Is it Poppy or Polly? I'm suddenly having a feeling it's Polly. Oh, it better not yeah. be Polly. I'm sure I checked this. Have I checked it and got it wrong anyway? Have I been saying it wrong all episode? It's Polly. Yeah, Polly. Good. Dear listener, throughout this whole episode... Substitute Polly for Poppy and we're grand. <laughs> All right. Polly um, wakes up, opens <laughs> the curtains of our window and looks down toward the sea. And there are three ships. Three yeah. ships are sailing in. And she's just filled with this sense of like awe. And she runs downstairs and there are two wise men left and they run down to the water with her. And on one of the ships, there is a lady in blue with a little child. With golden hair, just like Jesus would have had. Clear Madonna and child yeah. vibes. Um, <laughs> and then the boats dock and the Frenchman runs down, jumps onto the ship with the lady in blue and the little child on and kisses the hem of the lady in blue's dress hmm. because it's his wife and child. They weren't mm. killed after all, and they've come to find him on Christmas Day. And he's reunited. And it's funny because like, when the mad Frenchman tells his story to Tom, Tom has this thought of, if someone just told me my wife and child were dead, yeah. I think I'd check. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's never just... actually... I don't think it's ever actually specifically said, is it? We get that foreshadowing and then yeah. them appearing, and that's enough to spell it out. But yeah. <laughs> It is yeah. a lovely moment, that. But that whole thing, I mean, I studied French Revolution at A-level and was dead interested in that whole period, but 
even though it's so scant in this, it really personified and brought home like the terror mm. of that because so presumably this guy was middle class upper middle class guy yeah who was targeted by the uprising it's that real human thing because you know i think historically it's so easy to kind of go back and romanticize and glorify and be like the workers uprising and so yeah. much of that is so important but my god can you imagine He's had to put his wife and child in hiding. His entire yeah. life has turned upside down and he's had to flee to some little town. Well, and now he's not a grand gentleman in a middle-class home. He's no. a village weirdo. Yeah. Well, he's from France. It's miles away. It's a different yeah. country. You know, it's not yeah, like yeah. now where it's a ferry hop across the channel. No, he's come a long way. And like, mm. how much of a miracle is it that on Christmas Day, the ship with his wife and child happens to dock in that tiny village in Cornwall. Like, if you were trying to, like, take a critical look at this, of course it's not possible. But of course it is, because it's a miracle. But that's the point, yeah. Yeah, it's a miracle. And again, just the nature writing around that moment, like the description of the sea's golden, and and it's quite warm. And again, I thought that was quite nice, because that happens, you get those Christmas days where it's sort of just a reasonably warm winter day, and everything's just quite still. And Polly talks about that. Someone says to her, like, oh, it doesn't like it'll be a white Christmas. And she goes, well, you wouldn't want it to be, would you? You actually want Christmas to be like a warm spring day because you wouldn't want Mary and the Christ child to be cold on the ship. Yeah. If you want them to visit. It's nice to have like a warm Christmas morning. The illustrations again in this point are gorgeous. I mean, my bias here is I just really love yieldy 18th century three-masted ships. Yeah. But it's just that sense of adventure, it, that feeling where you, you're still kind of just at the tail end of that point in history where the world was big enough that going to the other side of the world would be like going to Mars now. Yeah. Well, that's why there's the assumption that Tom will never come back. Yeah. You know, you go away to sea, you could be anywhere. Shall we talk about possible anachronisms and like little Christmas cheats in this yeah, story? we were talking about this before. Go on, start start us off on this. Yeah. So, did people in late 18th and early 19th century write letters to Santa? Looking at it, I think she's got this fairly spot on. So, the idea of Father Christmas as a personification of Christmas apparently first started kind of Middle Ages, 15th century. But then it was about feasting. It wasn't about presents for children. Father Christmas was always an adult thing, it was feasting, it was merriment. And it was not until Victorian times that it became associated with children and gift giving. Apparently the first evidence of letter writing to Santa in Britain is 1895. But I think she's got this okay in here because it seems to me that Polly is very aware that she's writing to her aunts. Yes. You know, she's not expecting to get beads in her stocking. Because our aunt would see it as vain. There isn't that thing of like, um, oh, what will Father Christmas give me? No, no, she knows. The one reference we do have to Father Christmas is when the Frenchman shows up as the second wise man and is saying to the first wise man, like, would you give her this rosary bead for me? She was wanting beads from Father Christmas. So either this is a bit of an anachronism where it's kind of written backwards or... 
we're inconclusive on this. Maybe France had Saint Nicholas and it seems that the gift given tradition came from Saint Nicholas and then became Father Christmas. So maybe the turn of the 19th century, France already has a thing of Father Christmas brings the gifts. I mean, this is a very generous reading we're giving her. It is. Um, But also, if it's anachronistic, I think it's fine. Yeah. It's entirely fine. Like, I don't mind it at all. No. Um, The amount of stuff she gets in her stocking might be anachronistic. Yeah, she gets quite a lot of stuff. Yeah, and I think that commercialisation is a 20th century thing, if anything. I think think so. Shall we talk about what's in that stocking? Yeah, it's a really nice list, actually, isn't it? I hard related to this. She pretends to be asleep, and then when the aunts come and give her the full stocking, she's still pretending to be asleep. They leave the room. She wakes up and has a feel of the stocking to see if she got what she wanted. She knows that looking inside it would be cheating, but having a feel is fine. And because the sugar mouse is poking out the top, she says it says <laughs> she had a little lick of the sugar mouse's nose for comfort. Yeah. <laughs> It's a lovely image, and then wriggles back up to the top end of her bed. Yeah. Yeah. Like, just checking I got what I wanted. No beads. Oh, well, I knew there wouldn't be beads. We'll have a little lick of this sugar mouse, that'll do. Yeah. (laughs) It's not one that strikes me specifically as a kid's book. Um, I'd maybe, maybe not recommend it for, like, younger, younger kids, but basically anyone else. What do you think, like, eight up? Yeah. Maybe, a precocious eight. Or read it to, like, I mean, it feels like Little House on the Prairie to me, as in that it's probably not something I would have read myself at eight, nine, but was read to me mm. and I enjoyed. Like, this mm. is a, I think this is a lovely read aloud to a younger kid, or yeah. read by yourself as a teenager, maybe. Especially if you're into that sort of turn-of-the-century French Revolution mm timey thing which i know some teenagers are i mean if i'd if i'd found this while i was doing my a-levels and studying that it would have been a really nice little supplementary yeah. treat i think yeah nice as a read along because the pictures are so gorgeous and the chapters are so short it's a sort of thing that i didn't even really think i'd like and it's sort of you know period drama costume drama glory of god blah 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 not typically my thing but I really enjoyed it. Yeah, that sort of, um, I mean, edging on twee, I guess yeah. you'd call it, often really doesn't do it for us, but it's just um, it's just really well done. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like the literary equivalent of a bubble bath. Yeah, that's a ways, really good it? way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is that all on this book, do you think? Hey, I yeah. think so. So that was episode 16 of Even the Trunchbull. Thanks for listening. Once again, if you've any thoughts on books you loved as a kid. Or love now as a kid. Let us know or ask a grown-up to let us know. We're at eventhetrunchbull at gmail.com or catch us on Twitter and Facebook at TrunchbullPod. Intro music for this episode and every episode is What a Wonderful Day by Shane Ivers. And remember, kids' books can be for everyone because we've all been kids. Even, Even the, the trunch